0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, May 9th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. All right, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. When um, my family set out to uh, pour the foundation for our shed we debated whether or not to write anything into the wet cement. I don't know if you've ever had that moment in your life, but do we put our names in it? Do we put the dates in it? You know, put the paw prints of our dog in it? Do we put our our favorite quotes we want to remember in it? Whatever it may be. And in the end, as my wife is very fond of saying, uh, indecision is a decision. So there's nothing stamped in our concrete. Um, But Praise God. God is not a God of indecision. He has been clear who he is and what he has stamped on the foundation of the house that he is building, this church. We're going to get there this morning in our text, but you could sum his inscriptions up this way. I am faithful. Faithful. And so it should come as no surprise that the story of Redemption Hill is really a story of God's faithfulness. You know, 13 years ago, I, I walked into the principal's office of Holton Elementary, a, a school just blocks from the house that we had moved to four years prior. And I went, no phone call ahead of time, no, no plan, just went to see if the principal would be open to renting space in the school to a new church. I had never met Dr. Hudson, nor was I aware of the fact that he had kicked out the pre- previous two churches that had rented space from him, and he had vowed to never rent to a church again. But for reasons that only God knows and reasons that still remain a source of awe to me this day, he said yes. Yes. And he continued to say yes. And in time, our church family grew exponentially. We continue to see the the power of God's people growing and maturing as a family. And that in itself is all making. People coming to faith in Christ and walking together to serving and strengthening one another as a family in endless ways. This is what becomes the fabric of who we are as a family. As souls are reborn by the grace of God, believers are baptized. We saw marriages saved, communities birthed, prayers prayed, countless lives changed. And as I think about the men and the women and the children that God brought over the years and the ways He formed us into a body, a family, Redemption Hill, even to this day, I remain in awe when I think about it. God was faithful. And I think about the place where I'm standing right now, and at least those of you that are here with me are looking at me, this place that we're in. You know, the the weird thing about gathering for years at Halton, Richmond Public School contracts aren't the most secure things in the world, if you didn't know. Um, They could give us notice at any time with a very short lead time uh, that we would no longer be able to gather there. That started from the very first day. So even from the earliest years of the church, we were always on the hunt. You know, at first we were on the hunt for offices and a place where we might be able to have like a, a classroom or a small meeting space because we didn't even have that at first. The office that existed at first was an art gallery. It had no walls and no doors. And it became increasingly difficult to actually do what we needed to do in that space and the reality of it is that this building was the result of a hunt for office and meeting space 10 years ago. You know, we had asked repeatedly about this church building that was on the market going unused, and we had even written letters to the church who owned it, but they wanted over a million dollars for it. And our little infant church had only been approved to spend about 300000 and eventually, they put it up for auction, and God provided in an utterly unexpected way. About five of us sat up there in the special seats in the balcony and hung over the railing as cool hand burns, as I call him, sat back here with a paddle, and we were texting, keep going, no stop, keep going. We had no idea who was actually bidding, but then it was over, and we weren't sure if we won because we couldn't see But we learned that God had made it possible for just over $250,000 and left us the money we needed to replace the roof on the education wing back here that had a hole in it that was so old that water was going from the roof all the way down to the bottom floor. And we had exactly what we needed to be able to do it. And even today, that moment and that day remains a source of awe for me. God was faithful. You know, with that happening, we all of a sudden had a place where we could have offices where we could work that had walls and doors, and we could actually meet with people privately. We could hold grace gatherings. We could begin a summer dinner series. We could have Christmas Eve services. And as God and His faithfulness continued to grow our church family, we were able to actually stretch out and, and start a third service in this building. And when we did that, new memories were formed new relationships were established new giftings in the family began to emerge and rise to the surface and again god was proving his faithfulness you know and that family growth it eventually tested the limits of the pastor's ability to oversee the family well and so we sought his wisdom for the church family and At the end of 2018, around the beginning of 2019, we intentionally kind of reorganized from one group of elders overseeing three services to to a decision to lead and oversee in a more intentional and healthier way as we had two elder groups overseeing one church and two congregations. And as we move forward, we saw that God remained faithful. And last spring, just... 14 months or so after that decision, the whole world changed. And again, we sought his wisdom, and it seemed clear that for the health of our family in crisis, we would be one collected family under one group of pastors who could care and oversee and lead Redemption Hill through the process. And in the blink of an eye, the way of life for our church family was changed. You know, we had no way of being able to anticipate the year of ministry and strain that would lay ahead. You know, the extended months that it proved to be of not being able to gather as a people, doing life as a church family with, without any sense of normalcy. All of it in the midst of walking through cultural tensions and a polarizing and very contentious election season. You know, all of us in this have walked through a a season of loss. Not being able to gather together, not being able to be physically present with each other. It strained all of us. We weren't meant to go through all of this like that. Without the physical presence of, of one another as a family. Without the encouragement and without the strengthening of a regular gathering of God's people. And so it's right to to look back and think on that loss. But we do that so that we can see rightly the beauty of the moment right here and right now as you can turn your face and look at one another, look into one another's eyes and recognize the gift of God's grace and the gathering of his people. And we can remind each other even right now of God's faithfulness, his faithfulness in Each of our individual lives, but his continued faithfulness to his people, to this church family, Redemption Hill, over all the years. For all that's changed, his faithfulness hasn't changed. The inscription on the foundation of the house that he is building for his people, the church, it hasn't changed. I am faithful. And so we can know that in the next season of life for this church family, he's going to be faithful. And it's with this confidence, your, your pastors believe, that as life begins to kind of crawl back to some level of normalcy over the next few months, that it's wisest for us to keep together what God brought back together as one people, as one congregation at Redemption Hill. We need time together to recalibrate, to reconnect, we need time to heal. You know, one of the chief ways that God does this for his people is through the Sunday gathering of the family. You know, Anyone that studies families at all agrees that the single most significant time for a family to reconnect, to recalibrate, to deepen, to strengthen their bonds is, is really around the dinner table. If you weren't aware of it, the, the Sunday gathering of God's people is when we gather together to feast on His grace together, to be reminded of who we are and whose we are together, for the relational bonds that God has established to be strengthened, to be reminded even as we look at one another and sing towards one another, to be reminded to think the best of one another and to recalibrate by God's grace for the days that lay ahead. As a church family, we have been without this essential unifying and, and strengthening experience for over a year, which is why we believe it's essential that as we move forward, we do the best that we can to make this family gathering essential and central to our life together. You know, the, the same little house that I mentioned a few minutes ago, just blocks away from Holton. We, we've grown our family there for over 17 years. And that little house is our home. And even though each of us would probably like a little more personal space, to be honest, our family of five can thrive and flourish in that house. You know, if God grew our family in number our home wouldn't be able to serve us as well in in the manner of thriving. But for us as a church family, it's really not that different. This particular space, this home, it served our family well. It's filled with a, a decade of memories of life and ministry. You know, for those who have gathered and grown at this particular space week after week, the potential of possibly parting from this home for a season, just as if I had to part from my family home on Maple Shade Lane. It would be bittersweet. But we can look. We can look at God's faithfulness, and we can look at what God is doing in our family, and we can look and see what our family needs for health and stability, and we can be thankful. Thankful for God's faithfulness to always provide what we need in each season. And these walls and these pews, even the pews, I know some of you don't agree, but even the pews have been his provision for us. And so we can look to them and we can look to him with the expectation for what he What he and his faithfulness will continue to do for his people. He's faithful, and we're faithful to him. And it's here that, as I think about it, I'm in awe again. See, because of your faithfulness faithfulness to be God's people, faithfulness to entrust your pastors at Redemption Hill with, with your tithes, with your offerings, with your resources. We're actually in a place to be able to own a property on just shy of six acres in the heart of our city, literally just one mile from the place where God saw fit to plant us 13 years ago. And there's so much in that to communicate. There's so much about that space to be excited about. But for the moment, we want you to know that we have continued to be diligent in pursuing that. I mean, we're working to get as much information about that as we can and to get it to you as quickly as possible. But for now, I, I, want, I want to say this. I, I want to honestly say that as I, I, I look at that, I'm in awe. I'm in awe that this pop property, this, this possibility is even available at this time. At such a critical time in the life of our church family, That through your faithfulness, we have the ability to actually move forward with it. And that God in his faithfulness has provided even the opportunity. Friends, he is faithful. He will always be faithful. This is what we can count on. This is what we have to remember. And as we pick back up in Paul's letter to Timothy... Paul is continuing to beat the drum of what it is we have to remember. And essentially, it's that God is faithful. He has been. He continues to be. He always will be. Listen to what Paul has to say to us today through his letter to Timothy. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things. Remember. Remember, this is what is essential for your health. Remember, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Remember, remember him. Remember that the word of God is not bound. Remember that if we endure, we will also reign with him. Remember, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He always has been He always will be, because he can't deny himself. Keep reminding yourself and keep reminding the church that God's grace in and through his son wins, because God is faithful. Keep reminding yourself and keep reminding the church, because you're forgetful. We so easily forget these things. If you've ever wondered why we're so repetitive around here, here's your biblical foundation for it. Remind them of these things. Present, active, indicative. Remind them now and keep on reminding them. Never stop reminding them. Never move on from these things. This is it. I don't do rants because this is really all I've got. I told the first service, you want rants on something, go to YouTube. Or don't go to YouTube. Not healthy for you. But this is it. This is all we've got. But here's the thing, it's the best thing to have. We we were watching a show just the other night. It's, It's loosely based a little bit on Rick Pitino if you're a college basketball fan. But it's about a college coach who had won the national championship numerous times, but he got in trouble and he got fired, and he became a pariah in the basketball world. And the only job available to him, given what he had done, was coaching private high school girls basketball in California. And so he goes, and you can imagine the the culture shock from him trying to move from where he was to where he is. And in the first game they play, they're getting killed, and halftime comes around. And he has this moment of honesty and this moment of, of just clarity with this team and he gives them the big halftime speech and then he looks at them and he says I imagine a lot of you are just disappointed in that famous coach buckets of national championships and all that I've got for you is go out there and try your hardest he said but here's the thing that's all there really is that's all I've got there's the secret it's out That's all there is. Friends, this is all there is. Remind them of these things. Keep your attention on Jesus. Set your heart on him. Root yourself in the reality that God's grace and faithfulness wins. That's it. And that's all you need. Keep reminding them of these things, because keeping your attention on Jesus will keep you from ruin. Keep reminding them of these things, not only because they're forgetful, but because every single day there are threats to the health and well-being of God's people. You and I know it to be true. We've experienced any number of them over the last year from suffering to loss to separation and even something more particularly akin to what Paul has in mind here, the the influence of bad ideology or bad theology. Keep your attention on Jesus because keeping your attention on him will keep you from ruin. Remind them of these things. Keep reminding them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Literally, it says, charge them before God not to engage in word fights. That's what it says. Word fights. What Paul has in mind was this propensity that's just as real now as it was back in his day for people to engage in these arguments, these lofty, intellectual, pseudo-philosophical, ideological arguments around words that sounded really smart, that sounded really learned, that sounded really important, but had no real substance for life. Charge them before God not to get caught up in these word fights. Or as one writer said, these word fights, Battles that pit divine truth against human philosophy and make the Bible answerable to man. Or the kind of word battle that attacks the simple truth of Scripture with supposedly sophisticated philosophy and rationalizing of men. Keep your attention on Jesus. Don't get caught up in these word battles. That do no good. Paul says they're unprofitable. Not only do they do no good, that's one thing. Look, that, this isn't profitable. They're not just not profitable, they're actually harmful. Don't get caught up in these things that have no profit, but only ruin look at it only ruin the hearers. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul wrote that an unhealthy interest in controversies and arguments, arguments, same word for word fights, same word, those who have an unhealthy interest in controversies and word fights result in envy, quarreling, malicious talk, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind as I thought about it this week, I I got stuck on that evil suspicion. Speculative accusations of other people's motives in our mind and our heart. Assuming that we can discern the true motive behind what someone is saying and what they're doing. And not just assuming that we can discern the motive but then playing that narrative in our mind and our hearts over and over again until we believe that our assumption is actually fact. Is there any wonder that the result is constant friction? Constant friction over the last year, even amongst God's people, in the name of speculative accusation and intention and motive around political power and cultural relevance. Constant tension. And it brings nothing but ruin. Paul's not being dramatic here. There's no melodrama in the letter. It's why he says, charge them before God in the eyes of the one who created them, in the eyes of the one who set his love upon you before the foundation of the earth. In the eyes of the one who sent his son to die the death that you deserve to die for your sins, before him, don't get caught up in this stuff. Not only is it not profitable, it's dangerous. It's unhealthy. Dan Doriani, who's a professor in St. Louis, but he's a pastor as well, He said, Americans can't seem to endure disappointment in silence. All too often, church members behave like Americans, not like Jesus' disciples. And we tend to take confrontational media personalities as our standard to imitate when disappointment arises. Don't get caught up in word fights, it's not only not profitable. It's dangerous. Keeping your attention on Jesus will help to keep you from ruin. But that's not all that Paul has for Timothy and the church. Listen to where he goes. Rather than bickering over words, God's people are to be about the business of doing the work. You heard that phrase? It's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. God has been calling his people to this for centuries. The only difference is what work it is is you're to be about. Look at what Paul says. Do your best. Put every effort into this. Move forward with zeal. Be eager. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved pleasing you could translate that and before we go on i i want to make a sidebar here because i think in understanding what paul is saying and what he's about to say there's an area of confusion that i think we get caught up in here right so so stick with me for a minute you can live in such a way that it pleases the heart of god You can live in such a way that it's pleasing to God. You can please Him. Now listen, you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot earn your salvation. But by His grace, God brought you into a new relationship with Him as your heavenly Father. And in that relationship with Him, you can please Him. When Paul talks about being approved here, that's translated in other places as pleasing. Not justified, not saved, not even loved, but pleasing. Pleasing God doesn't make you any more of his child, but pleasing God is pleasing God. And you can live in a way that pleases, that delights the heart of your heavenly father. And when you don't, you're no less his child. But you can please him. And if that's the case, should we not be eager to do it? Should we not be eager to live in such a way? Right? Do your best. That's an eagerness. An eagerness to live in such a way that you're pleasing to your heavenly father eager to get after living in a way that pleases him. Now listen, here's where confusion gets into our minds and our hearts. Paul is not talking about pleasing God as some kind of attempt at earning his love. That is an utterly impossible burden. He loves you by grace, period. Breathe. Enjoy that. Be rooted and grounded in that. But let that produce the eagerness in you to live a new way. Not eager to please yourself. Not eager to please other people. But eager to please your heavenly father. Who set his love and affection on you in his son before the foundation of the earth. You and I know it to be true. Who we want to please shapes the decisions that we make and the ways that we live, period. Friends, God's grace sets you free from living to please yourself and please others more than you desire to please Him. Grace anchors you from the drift that pulls us into trying to live in such a way where what we care most about is pleasing our own desires or even pleasing the desires of others around us. No, we live and are eager to live in such a way that's pleasing to God. And what does that look like? It looks like a worker who has no need to be ashamed No need to be ashamed of his work. What is that? Well, listen to what Paul says. Rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling it. It's a word picture. In Paul's day, in their mind, the way the word would have been used, they would have had in their their mind immediately the image of Roman legions cutting roads and cutting paths through new territories. Cutting those paths straight so that the armies and the people could march from place to place. Rightly handling simply translates cutting straight, keeping straight, not deviating, not moving in crooked directions, but cutting straight. Unashamed workers living such a way that's pleasing to the heart of God is not cutting crooked paths with the gospel. Not trimming it, not twisting it. Proclaiming grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone and calling all people in all places to repent and believe in Jesus. Listen, in every conversation that we have today, there is the temptation to cut a crooked path with the gospel, to trim it, to twist it, to cut something out of it, to make it more appealing and more palatable to people around us sometimes. Workers who have no need to be ashamed of their work are those who cut straight paths with God's word. They don't trim it. Listen, as a pastor, I understand, and again, this is just the reality of the world that we're in and the culture that we're in and the reality of, of indwelling sin in hearts. I understand that for a lot of people, joining a church is a lot like joining the gym. You look around at where you live. You find the place that seems to be the most appealing. Maybe it's got what you're looking for at this moment and this phase until it doesn't, right? And then you look for the other one that's closest to doing what you want to do the way you want to do it. And for pastors and for leaders and for other church members, there's always this temptation to not say too much of one thing, to say too little of another thing. Because if we say the wrong thing the wrong way at the wrong time to the wrong person, you might get up and... Go find the maskless service over here or the 12-foot distance service over there. Whatever it is. I don't know. And the temptation exists to twist, to turn, to cut crooked paths through God's word to make everybody happy, to cater. And Paul says, don't do that with the gospel. Cut straight paths. You and I live a life pleasing to our Heavenly Father as we devote ourselves to His Word, to the Gospel, as we labor over it, think over it, dig into it, and cut it straight. We don't find ourselves looking for every loophole that we can find to be able to do what it is we want to do to please ourselves. We don't do theological gymnastics with the Bible, trying to make it say what we want it to say to improve what we want to do. Listen, friends, every household needs a mom who cuts the gospel straight. What a high calling on Mother's Day. Timothy's mom and Timothy's grandmom cut the gospel straight. Look at the legacy that's left. Friends, be about doing the work of loving the gospel of Jesus. Keeping your attention on him. Cutting straight through his word of grace, and avoiding, Paul says in verse 16, irreverent babble. Paul's got a a bone in his mouth. He's not letting go. One writer said, Paul clearly has in mind certain people in Ephesus who like to play with religious ideas and words in the same way that a small child plays a game of marbles. They speculate about God and weave high-sounding theories about Christianity Until they've reduced it to some kind of meaningless and vague philosophy. That is an entirely different way of handling the word of truth. There are two ways to handle the word of truth. Handle it rightly. Cutting a straight path. Or cutting crooked paths. This is what Paul is getting after. Avoid This irreverent babble, avoid it, because, for, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And there's a tremendous irony here, actually, in the language. What Paul is saying is that these babblers who are playing fast and loose with the word of truth, they fancy themselves as progressives but the only progress they're making is in the wrong direction. The progressives are only progressing towards greater ungodliness. And it's real. I had a hard time getting through this part in the first service. I might do it better in this one, but my mentor who God used to utterly change my life give me a love of the Bible, give me a love of teaching God's Word. Man, I'll i never forget, I, I was in college, I was finishing up college, I'd gotten saved like a year before, I'd spent time with him, and he, he was beginning to teach verse by verse through the Bible on a Wednesday night, and that was utterly new to me, and I had a game, and I had gotten banged up that Wednesday in a game, and I showed up that Wednesday night with ice around my knee having not even showered from the game because I just couldn't fathom the idea that somebody got to get up and teach the Bible verse by verse. Like what an amazing thing. And I showed up and I spent years with him and my wife and I were, no life. five minutes away from moving back to Nashville to help him plant a church 15 years ago. And there's a part of me that wants nothing more than to be back in Nashville doing that. And we decided not to do it at the last minute. We just felt like there was something else God had here. And in these years, he has become the high priest of what's called progressive Christianity. Some of you may be familiar with him, some of his writings, some of his names. We won't go there. But I have watched as he's begun to play fast and loose with God's word to the point where this past year he declared and taught a series and a book is being written around the idea that the Bible really isn't the word of God. And about 4 years ago, 3 years ago maybe, we sat down for breakfast and we remained connected and we sat down and we opened the Bible and it came down to this. Is this a collection of ancient writings That every generation has the authority and the responsibility to understand and to change in every changing era? Or is it God's word and does it have authority? One or the other. And our lives have gone in massively different directions. And Paul says, this process will do nothing but lead people into more and more ungodliness. And I've watched it happen over and over as he and those that he now leads use the Bible in a way to justify every sinful behavior or desire that they want to pursue. And I'm watching their lives fall apart. Paul says you've got to avoid this stuff. It spreads, he says, like gangrene. That's a nasty but very vivid picture. Bad ideas and bad theology aren't stagnant, they actually spread. It's been this way since the garden. In Paul's day, it was other teachers in the church, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who've swerved from the truth. He switches metaphors, and now it's an archery metaphor. That swerving is the image of someone setting their bow and setting their arrow locked in on the target, but as they shoot, the arrow swerves and goes off target. These guys have swerved from the truth of God. They're no longer cutting straight, they're cutting crooked paths. And what's the path that they're cutting? But well, Paul says that they're saying the resurrection has already happened. See, in their day, some of the progressives, theologically in their day, were saying that the bodily resurrection of Jesus was true, but the promised physical resurrection of his believers—that's wrongly, that's misunderstood by the church. What's really happening is that the fullness of God's eternal promises are present and available now for you spiritually. Because in those days, in Greek philosophy and Gnostic philosophy, the physical world and the body was viewed as secondary to the spiritual. Body bad, spirit good. So the idea of a physical resurrection, it didn't matter to them. They read what God had promised and said, all of that is for you now. So do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't matter. All those promises, they're for you now. It was their own health and wealth world. Candy-coated lies. And twisting the teaching of the word of truth is ultimately in itself a denial of the gospel. Because think about it in the real life. If this was really true, what Hymenaeus and Philetus were teaching, a version of what many churches, not only in our country but now around the world, are teaching. If it's really true, what hope is there for you in the future? Really? If this is all there is, because the physical, it doesn't matter. There's no physical resurrection on the other side for you. No heavenly perfected body. No future new heavens and new earth. What hope is there for you, really? How do you make sense out of death? In the end, what you're saying is that sin and death have the final word. And Paul says... This gangrene, it's upsetting the faith of some. English doesn't quite capture it, but it's literally capsizing people's faith. It's literally shipwrecking people. Listen, family, I know some of you feel like your pastors might get a little animated sometimes about ideas and doctrines. Ideas and philosophies and doctrines that are dangerous to your souls and we don't get animated because we like to argue or because we like to yell we get animated because your flirtation with these ideas can leave you shipwrecked it's true we watch it happen we watch it to happen to people we love and the reality of it is, some of you are utterly enchanted by the ideas of progressive Christianity, high sounding critical theorists, philosophizing postmodernists and deconstructionists who offer an entirely new way of understanding the world and the Bible. Where is the gold there? It's nowhere. There's no gold in there, it's just shipwreck. And listen, you can write me off all you want. Don't listen to me, fine. But please don't write God off. If you won't listen to me or any one of the pastors, at least listen to God through Paul and don't cut him off. It leads to ruin. The flirtation with it isn't innocent, it's dangerous. Do the work, yeah, the right work, of cutting a straight path and keeping your attention and your heart fixated on Jesus and the faithfulness of God and the victory of his grace because crooked paths will lead to shipwreck, period. Verse 19, where Paul goes, though, is an example of one of the reasons why I love reading Paul. Because having said all of this, Paul's anticipating a response in the church. He's anticipating some people recognizing what he's saying and recognizing the reality around them. And the response that he's anticipating is a bunch of sweaty, palmed church folk wringing their hands in worry. Because if this gangrene is present and it's spreading through the church and it's capsizing some, even Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were teaching, they had an actual role and they were teaching and they're teaching this Babel. What if the some become many? What if the some who are becoming infected by this dangerous ideology, what if they become the many? And what if the many become all? Is the church going to be able to stand? And Paul's answer and encouragement in verse 19, take us back to where I started, however many minutes ago. God's firm foundation stands. The foundation that God has laid for the house that he is building will stand because Jesus is the cornerstone of the house. And There's nothing more stable, nothing more firm than that. And the foundation that God has laid for the house, the church that he is building, Paul says it bears this seal. It has inscriptions on it. A couple of them. The Lord knows who were his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul's actually alluding back to a story in Israel's history. It's in Numbers 16. You can go read it this week. I'll I'll try to just briefly tell you the story so you can understand what Paul is saying. It's the story of, of what's known as Korah's Rebellion, Korah gathered a a couple of men and then a group behind them and came to Moses. And he came to Moses and challenged the authority of Moses and Aaron to be the leaders of God's people. Korah basically said, we're all holy. Why do you get the right to lead us? Why do you and Aaron and and the priests, the 250 priests, why do you get to lead us? We're all holy. So God told Moses to call the entire congregation of Israel together the next morning and to bring him and Aaron and the priest, and then Korah and all of his group together. And when they came together in the morning, it's way more dramatic than I'm telling you because we don't have time for me to get as dramatic as the story gets, but it's high tension. Come together the next morning. And when they come together, God says, I'll show you who mine are. This is what Paul is referring to. Come together tomorrow morning and I'll show who are mine. And so they come together. And in the morning, God tells Moses to tell the congregation, to tell the people of Israel to move away from the presence and the tents of Korah and his men. Don't touch anything as you separate yourself from them. And as the congregation separates themselves from Korah and his men, go read it in number 16, the ground opens up and swallows Korah and his men whole. Depart from that iniquity. I know who are mine, and I will show you. Mine will separate themselves from this iniquity. I know who are mine, and I keep those who are mine. Their names are written in the book of life. And those who are mine depart from the error of thought and the error of practice. That Korah and his men, and in Paul's day, Hymenaeus and Philetus and these irreverent babblers were spreading like gangrene. Listen, friends, God is not outsmarted by new ideas. He's not watching and listening to these things and shaking his hands with fear, wondering if the church is going to fall away. He knows who are his. And you can recognize who are his by how they live. They live increasingly eager to please their heavenly father as they keep their attention and their focus on Jesus and God's grace and faithfulness towards them, putting every effort and intention into seeing and knowing Jesus in his word, cutting it straight, not twisting it, not trimming it, but cutting it straight not ashamed of it. You can see them. You can watch them. You can observe them. Paul says to the Corinthian church that we have a unique aroma, the aroma of grace, resting in the confidence of knowing that God's grace wins. That as we sing, Christ, the sure and steady anchor. Through the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, oh my soul. Now lift your eyes to Calvary. This, Jesus, the faithfulness of God. The victory of his grace. This, my ballast of assurance. See God's love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor because it, the faithfulness of God, the victory of his grace, the work of his son, it shall never be removed. He's faithful. He always has been. He always will be. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word together. Father, what we need this morning is a work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We need you to do work in us of fixing our attention, of fixing our focus, of fixing our delight on your faithfulness. Lord, we want to be a people who live lives eagerly desiring to please you. Not so that we can earn anything. No, you have loved us by your grace. But because you've loved us by your grace, we want to live lives eager to please you. Eager to see and enjoy your son. Eager to delight and surrender to your word. Eager to live in such a way that the aroma of your grace and faithfulness follows us everywhere that we go. Lord, help us. Help us in our unbelief. Help us in our struggle. Help us in our temptation. Help us in our disappointment. Help us in our confusion to remember your faithfulness. You're faithful. You can't deny yourself. You won't change. Help us. Help us, Lord, to find our joy in you. And We ask that you would do this. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.